0: Hey guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. I'd like to start off today's episode with a few questions. What does it mean to be nice? What, if any, are the universal characteristics of niceness? Are some aspects of niceness nicer than others? Okay, I'll stop here because to continue down this rabbit hole is pointless. Every new question I have in mind is simply a more complicated way of asking the first question. What does it mean to be nice? I'm going to make a bold statement. To be nice doesn't mean anything at all, at least nothing specific. When we use the word nice, most of the time, we could be using a more precise word in its place. Here's a quote from Jane Austen's 1803 novel, Northanger Abbey. Quote, And this is a very nice day, and we are taking a very nice walk. And you are two very nice young ladies. Oh, it is a very nice word indeed. It does for everything. End quote. Indeed it does. The characteristics of niceness are both so subjective and so numerous that if you were to tell me, that guy over there is nice, the only thing I can deduce about him is that he probably won't punch me in the face if I say something he doesn't like. As for his actual personality, though, I don't know anything at all. Nice is a semantically weak word, and it always has been. In today's episode, we're going to explore why. If you listen to episode one, you've already heard me say this, but for the sake of listeners who may have missed it, I'm going to say it again. Words have histories, and the present incarnation of any word is often the byproduct of many stages of change. Nice is no exception to this rule. In fact, it is the rule. Nice has gone through perhaps more changes than any other word in the English language, and I'm not talking about little changes either. I'm talking about a series of transformations that turned a word that once meant ignorant into a word that presently means pleasant or agreeable. That's right. When Nice first entered the English language via Old French during the late 13th century, it meant ignorant, foolish, or senseless. The Old French word Nice had the same meaning, and the Latin word Nescius, from which the French word is derived, also had the same meaning. Ne is the Latin prefix for not, and Scius is a form of the verb Scire, which means to know. When put together, these two root words form a new word that literally means to not know. So there's the word's etymological foundation. It seems pretty clear, right? Nice was the word for stupid. But for some reason, shortly after nice made its way into English, its range of meanings began spiraling out of control. Okay, brace yourselves for this. Ignorant, careless, clumsy, extraordinary, weak, poor needy, timid, fussy, dainty, delicate, promiscuous, wanton, extravagant, ostentatious, cowardly, precise, careful, coy, reserved, scrupulous, subtle, refined, correct, agreeable, delightful, kind, and thoughtful were all at one point what it meant to be nice. And this list is by no means exhaustive. So what happened? Linguists don't have a precise understanding of how the many senses of the word nice developed and diverged, and, to be honest, neither do I. But I'm going to try my best to weave together a somewhat cohesive narrative for you guys. The evolution of the word nice is like a disjointed, non-linear Tarantino movie. Things don't always happen in a predictable, chronological sequence, and you'll see what I mean later on in the episode. The evolution of nice is a testament to how words can mean whatever you want them to mean. Let's start things off with a few lines from Geoffrey Chaucer. As many of you probably know, Geoffrey Chaucer is the medieval poet most famous for the Canterbury Tales, and he's widely considered to be the godfather of the English vernacular. At a time when the predominant literary languages in England were in fact French and Latin, Chaucer composed poetry in the day-to-day language spoken by the common people of his time. This is significant to us because the linguistic flavor of Chaucer's work is a reflection of how ordinary people actually spoke. So, if we want an authentic look at how people in the 14th century were using the word nice, he's a reliable source. In the Canterbury Tales, nice, which, by the way, was originally spelled N-Y-C-E, N would have been pronounced Nisa, is used several times according to its original definition, meaning stupid or foolish. For instance, in the Reeves tale, Chaucer writes, now get ready for my Middle English, ladies and gentlemen, and don he feel backward upon his wife that wista no thing of this Nisa strife. Most modern translations of this line read something like, He staggered and fell down backward upon his wife, who knew nothing of all this silly strife. Pretty straightforward. The original Latin sense of the word, meaning senseless, stupid, foolish, or silly, is still perfectly intact. In the poem's general prologue, nice is used to mean precise, particular, or scrupulous. The line, of Nisa conscience took he no keep, is generally translated as, he did not have a scrupulous conscience. The word appears again in the yeoman's tale, this time meaning strange. In the context of the larger passage in which it appears, the phrase can be translated as strange, mischievous lore. So as we can see, even during the earliest stages of evolution, nice was a semantically weak word, which is to say that, like the modern English word cool, it never strictly adhered to a specific meaning. Because of this semantic flexibility, if something was foolishly precise or foolishly strange, you could chalk it off as nice, and the general idea would still get across. This initial semantic weakness, or flexibility, depending on how you look at it, is the key to the words convoluted evolution. Now, the devil's advocate in you might be thinking, If nice just were translated as foolish in the previous examples, the lines would still make perfect sense and their meanings wouldn't change too drastically. While, yes, this may be true, the problem with this oversimplification is that it disregards the nuances of specificity. Foolishly precise and foolishly strange are not exactly the same thing as plain foolishness. They are modified extensions of it, and by the beginning of the 15th century, nice had become so radically modified that its original sense of foolishness became increasingly less and less relevant to its newly emerging usages. The Oxford English Dictionary cites lazy, delicate, fragile, faint-hearted, unmanly, and fussy as accepted definitions of nice during the 15th century. Even if you can find a link between some of these words and the notion of foolishness, not a single one of them could be interchanged with it as a proper synonym or even an approximate synonym. The operative forces behind these divergences is simple. Words are constantly being used, and what is intended by each individual speaker is not exactly the same every time. If a new connotation for a certain word arises and is shared by enough people, then the precise meaning of that word will change. The many reinventions of the word nice represent the most extreme case of this phenomenon. By the late 16th century, approximately 200 years after the time of Chaucer, the reinventions of nice had become so abundant that its original meaning had fallen completely out of usage. The late 16th century marks the emergence of early modern English, and the most significant writer of this era is none other than Shakespeare. Since people seem to take what he says pretty seriously, let's see how the word nice gets thrown around in his body of work. In Love's Labor's Lost, there's a monologue in which a young boy named Moth gives his master, Armado, advice on how to betray nice wenches. In translation, Moth is giving Armado advice on how to get promiscuous women to sleep with him. That's Act 3, Scene 1, for anyone who needs help in that department. In Romeo and Juliet, Friar Lawrence says, The letters were not nice, but of great weight. And in the context of this scene, nice means insignificant or insubstantial. In King Henry IV, Part 1, Henry Percy says, Were it good to set so rich a main on the nice hazard of one doubtful hour? And here, the word means full of risk or uncertainty. I can keep rattling off examples, but I think you get the point. Each of these cases represents a completely different usage of the word, not only from one another, but also from the historical usages preceding them. If you get creative, you might be able to fabricate an argument making fundamental links between these usages and certain aspects of foolishness But I think at this point, the links are weak, and it's safe to say that the word has entered semantic territory, or territories, of its own. Okay, so let's get away from textual sources for a second and do a little thought experiment. It's the year 1595, and my imaginary buddy and I are sitting outside a pub drinking beers. A girl our age walks by, and my friend nudges me and says, That girl over there is real nice. Other than sounding mildly creepy, what exactly does he mean? Well, unless he goes into more detail, I have no idea what he means. Based on the mostly negative examples of the word that we've looked at so far, I would assume he's saying something less than flattering about her, though we're about to reach the point in history where the connotation of nice is about to change. Oh wait, it already has. Here's where our story turns into a nonlinear Tarantino film. In circulation at the same time as these examples from Shakespeare are definitions such as luxurious, extravagantly dressed, shy, reluctant, fastidious, and pretty. So our vague idea of what it meant to be nice in the late 1500s just got vaguer. Oh, and to make things even more complicated, some of the neutral and possibly positive senses of the word I just mentioned are not chronologically connected to this particular time period. Some of them, such as over-refined and subtle, appear shortly after the era of Chaucer and coexisted alongside the many negative senses of the word. Confusing, huh? Well, from this point forward, the story starts coalescing. Let's single out the sense of the word that meant extravagantly dressed. It was originally used as a derogatory term to describe women who tried seducing men by dressing provocatively. It's a pretty clear extension of the promiscuous sense of the word. During approximately the early 17th century, extravagantly dressed morphed into elegantly dressed, and though there's no way to be sure if this particular shift is responsible for the definitive turning point in the words evolution, it does seem to coincide chronologically with the emergence of the next wave of meanings that came pouring into the language. From this point forward, it's all uphill for the history of nice. Out of this new elegant connotation came refined, refined not only in reference to dress, but also in reference to general conduct. During the 18th and 19th centuries, nice was adapted by the upper class as an all-purpose word to describe the manners of high society. Tactful, virtuous, discerning in literary style, and shy are just a few meanings developed in this period, and they all reflect aspects of aristocratic refinement. If shy seems out of place, it's because today we tend to associate shyness with meekness, but during the Georgian and Victorian eras of England, the aristocracy considered shyness to be one of the most admirable traits in women and a mark of proper upbringing. Well, now that we've made it to the 19th century, let's go back to that Jane Austen quote we started things off with. Here it is again. Quote, And this is a very nice day, and we are taking a very nice walk, and you are two very nice young ladies. Oh, it is a very nice word indeed. It does for everything. End quote. At last, in 1803, we have someone using the word nice in a sense similar to our own. After seeing the full scope of the word, Austin's quote rings true in an even deeper sense. Historically, Nice really has been used to mean everything. Well, now that we've followed the word from its Latin origins all the way through today, what can we say about the journey? Well, not much. A non-specific word leaves us with a non-specific conclusion. The only general statement we can make about the evolution of nice is that it went from meaning something vaguely negative to something vaguely positive. In 1926. Henry Fowler published a dictionary of modern American usage in which he concluded that the word was, quote, too great a favorite with the ladies who have charmed out of it all its individuality and converted it into a mere diffuser of vague and mild agreeableness. To me, this just sounds like a lazy excuse for misogyny. If Fowler actually had done his homework, he would have known that historically, The word never had any individuality, regardless of how a certain group of women at a certain point in time may have been using it. When the connotation of a word changes from negative to positive, it's a process that linguists call amelioration. It's a fairly uncommon phenomenon because, well, people at their cores are just a bunch of miserable cynics who tend to see the worst in things. I'm kidding, but not really. From a linguistic point of view, this is actually true. It's far more common for positive words to become negative words than for negative words to become positive words. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if the currently positive connotation of nice starts degenerating sometime during the next century. Just think of how often you hear people using the word sarcastically or skeptically or even as a euphemism for not so good. Well, that's it for this episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to reach me directly with comments, criticisms, or questions about the show, you can email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. If you're already in love with the show and want something more, head over to the Words for Granted blog at wordsforgranted.com. Each week, I'll be posting short articles about the origins of words relevant to current events. I also urge you to leave a positive review on iTunes if you get the chance that really helps put the show into the hands of more listeners and ultimately keeps the show alive. If you'd like to support the show with a direct contribution, you can do so via Patreon. For those of you who don't know, Patreon is a great crowdfunding service that helps independent creators get their work out into the world. You can pledge as little or as much money as you'd like. Just head over to wordsforgranted.com to find the link. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Oh, and one more thing. I'd like to give a shout out to Zach Tenorio Miller from Arc Iris for providing Words for Granted with music. You can check out more from Arc Iris at arcirismusic.com. All right, thanks for listening. I'll see you guys next time here at Words for Granted.